This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian, as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexualist content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Tell us about yourself, man. Well, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. uh, Mike. I always go to most meetings uh, with that in mind. Uh, Funny story about that, I went to a a youth group that I work with, uh, part of my paying back, and... uh, and I introduced myself at the first meeting, and I—that's how I opened up my kind of my welcome speech. <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. "It doesn't quite get the same reaction to a non-alcoholic group as it does to an <laughs> alcoholic group." And you know, some of them who knew known my story laughed, and uh, most of the parents were kind of, you know, had that deer in the headlight look. So it's kind of funny how you, after you realize what you are and what you've been, um, I don't mind telling people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't like to tell people or a lot of people use the, well, I've heard a lot of monikers. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a grateful alcoholic, but I just like to keep it simple. I'm an alcoholic. Right? Mm. My friend who's been an alcoholic for 39 years or something still just keeps it simple and uses one word. So yeah. kind of like where I'm at. So yeah, that's, that's who I am. Well, it's just a part of who you are. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a big part though. After you, uh, I really like s- some of the stuff in AA you know, the monikers or the, the, the buzzwords, whatever you want to mm. call them, like some of the short sayings. I When I first went to treatment uh, 14 months ago, I was like, I'm not talking in group and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. And and yeah, now I'm doing it all, right? And I, you don't believe those, you know, higher power, God, all the stuff that they, they base it on. And uh, yeah, now I'm full in, full on and believe in it all and love the words and loves the sayings and you know, some of the stuff you hear and, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I bought in, which I had to do, uh, cause I was going down a pretty dark road. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a new, yeah. Uh, would I tell everybody? I don't know. I think I would. I think I got enough behind me now at 14 months that I don't mind telling people. And some people are still, as long as AA has been around since 1934, there's still that cloud around us yeah. as addicts. And I don't know why, um, but it's yeah. still there. That's a good question, though, hey? Like, why why would that hang around so much when there is, like, a good percentage of people that get better from it, right? So, Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even know their success rate's got to be phenomenal, right? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, if it was if it worked in 1934 and it's still working, right? It's mm-hmm. one of those adages where it's not broke, don't, don't fix it. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, I always say this one. I heard this from an old-timer one time. He said... I never thought I would write in my yearbook bio that I would become an alcoholic and kind of kind of a neat way to live it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suffer from PTSD as well. 
Um, so I would never want to put that next to my yearbook picture and when I graduated from high school. But mm. uh, um, like I, I've said to a lot of people through my work and my family that I'm not proud of what I did um, in my previous life, but I'm sure proud of what I did to get out of it. Mm. Um, and I, I, I find it quite funny where people in the program call it your drinking career. Yeah, I, I laugh at that all the time and not being rude to anybody. I just, that's a great way to say it. Like mm-hmm. we spent more time and energy lying, stealing, cheating, doing everything possible. And yeah, it was a career. It was yeah. a full on career. I wish I had got paid for it. It yeah. would have been great. Right. Um, yeah. It was a full-time fucking job. Oh yeah. It was a yeah. full-time job. I mean, I don't know how I had time to have a work and a family around my full-time job. I mean, mm-hmm. it was crazy, but, uh, and, and you know, you, you think you've got one up on somebody. And that was one of the things in treatment is I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear anybody's bullshit stories. I didn't want to hear anybody's war stories. I have to put mm-hmm. my helmet on, listen to their, but they're so interesting and they're so similar mm-hmm. where you think, oh, I must be the only guy in the world that ever did that, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. But then you hear it from every guy. I had 62 guys and treat, people in treatment with me for everything, you know, every type of addiction. And it was just, I love the stories because that's what, I'm a hands-on mm-hmm. guy. Don't like book work, never like school. But when somebody says, you know what, I did this, and then I realized how much of an idiot I was, or mm-hmm. I learned from that. And I learned from the old timers in the meetings. And, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, it's been a journey. It's still going to be a journey. But uh, I've learned a lot. And as you know, working through the steps, I'm on step six. And yeah, it's, it's going to be more of a journey. And I'm really dreading step eight, as mm-hmm. I've told you many times. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll work through that and get that done too. But uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, I'm I'm happier man than I was 14 months ago. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm, I talk to an addictions doctor once a month and uh, I use the phrase with him, I'm bored and I like it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, being an addict, all your day ha- is usually filled up with getting, picking up, thinking about where there's the money going to come from or whatever. And now I don't have that and I don't miss it. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm, I like being bored at home and, you know, bored with going out for a coffee. And it's really, it's, it's a complete change from being the addictive lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, uh, but it's enjoyable. It's really enjoyable. Yeah. So far, hopefully for a long time to come. Totally, man. Well, and don't, you know, from the 14 months that I've known you or whatever, it's been 12 months or just a bit over that or whatever. Like what a transition, eh? Like, I, I'm sure you noticed at some point where you were like, huh, I'm not as fucking angry anymore. Like, yeah. I don't know how it happened for you, but that's kind of what it was Well, like and me. it's funny because I, you know, I, I, I go to counseling for two hours, sometimes three hours a week for PTSD and working through with those people. And then I go to my addictions doctor once a month and uh, I sit with a group of people who kind of just, it's a check-in really. Mm. And they're, they're no bullshit, right? So they know if something's wrong and. I went three weeks ago and, you know, the doc, could, he's pretty good. He can figure out, although he's not an addict or never mm-hmm. was, he that's his specialty. Um, and he knew something was wrong. And I said, yeah, I've been really working on these these traumas in my life and I've been clearing a couple of them up. And I said, you know, the, I'm not dreaming anymore and I'm, I'm not doing this and I got on a new medication. And he's like, but you're angry. And I go, yeah, what's up? And he goes, because your brain deals with PTSD and anger in the same part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And now that you're releasing some of your PTSD demons, you've got more room to be angry. And I said, well, isn't that great? Yeah. (laughs) I can't just have one. I've got to have 10 things going on. He goes, oh, yeah, nothing's ever simple in life in your Mm -hmm. your situation. 
but it's good to know that. And it, but the only thing is, the difference in that is now I have some mechanisms to deal with the anger mm. that comes from the trauma. So getting rid of some of that trauma, which will never be gone, uh, as my doc tells me, it'll still be there. But having the mechanisms to deal with it on a day-to-day basis mm. is, is good, is really good. Yeah, Absolutely. And so how did you get to where you are now from wherever you came from? So it's going to be tricky for you and me. I just thought of this as we were like setting up to talk because I heard your fifth step. So it's going to be very tricky for me not to like go back to that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it better that you just tell me, tell us stuff. Okay. Because then I'm not going to divulge stuff that I shouldn't be divulging. Well, life started for me on the East Coast, uh, born and raised to a military family. Wife was, um, my mom was a homemaker. I'm the youngest of four. I think I was the mistake. I'm uh, 16, 11, and 10 years younger than my siblings. So I was born, uh, yeah, a mistake. Maybe the milkman. All my all my siblings and parents are brown-haired and brown-eyed. I'm blue-eyed and, brown- and blonde-haired. So figure it out from there. Um, normal family childhood. Yeah, pretty good. Played lots of sports. My dad was a big athlete. Uh, he left the military when I was about six. We stayed in the same little hometown. He went back to work as a contractor for the military. Um yeah, nine years old, I almost drowned. Was saved by a couple of guys. Funny enough, out behind the rec center smoking weed. Hmm. Um, pulled me out of the water. Uh, saved me at nine. Um, went through a stage of bullying at ten, where I was bullied and uh, ended up beating up a bully. And uh, I think that's really where I credit my anger coming from and starting, where I didn't care about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Twelve years old, my dad unfortunately passed away, so I was left to a single mom. Well, with two older brothers. My sister had gone off to university. And uh, life was still good. I never suffered with anything. I never um, I never wanted for anything, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. not a, I wouldn't say it was a hard life, but a strict life. My mom uh, was involved in church, and she was Irish. So, I mean, it, it was pretty much, uh, you know, uh, disciplinary style. My brothers were great. They were my my older brother was eight years older than me. So I mean, when I was a kid, he was a teenager, and mm. he, he was a good brother because you know we did things together and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, but I had a kind of a chip on my shoulder when I was a teenager. I went through the cadet program. I was big into the military. My dad was military. My a lot of my uncles and grandpas and stuff. And my uh, my dad's dad was a Mountie. Uh, after he had a career in the Major League Baseball, played with the Boston Red Sox. Mm. For a very short time, he broke his elbow, and then went back to Pete, back to uh, the East Coast, and um, became a Mountie. Um, so a lot of that in my family. So at eighteen, I said I had enough. I finished a one-year program in college, and I joined the military. Left home, uh, moved out west, went to Saskatchewan for a year. That was phenomenal. I've never been west of Montreal, I guess, west of Toronto. I guess was probably the furthest west, and loved it. Um, came to Calgary, spent eight years here in the military. Got married, had a daughter, um, left the military after about 10 years of full-time, spent another four in the uh, in the part-time military, and that's where really my drinking career started, I think, was in the military. So it's not a, not a pleasant lifestyle. I mean, it's hard work, it's hard drink, and it's hard fighting, and that's kind of the – when I was in uh, boot camp, the card that you got after a number of weeks of being – confined to your barrack block on the back you were allowed to go have a beer and it said if you're old enough to serve you're old enough to be served mm-hmm. 
So in Nova Scotia, where I attended boot camp, it was 19 was the drinking age. We had some kids that were 17, just turned 17 in our ranks. And I mean, they were allowed to drink right off the hop. So mm. it wasn't looked upon as a bad thing. Everybody drank, everybody fought, and everybody was together. We were a big family. So, Can I ask you a question about sure. that? Like, what do you think that's about, though? Like, why do you, why do you think that, because you were in for long enough, I think, to have an opinion, right? Like, how, why do you think that the military, much like policing and stuff, has like this subculture of drinking and fighting and like, what do you think that's about? I, I, I have think, no idea. Well, I think it basically, to me, it's pretty simple. They break everybody down to the same level mm-hmm. and everybody sort of comes up the ladder together. So mm-hmm. in boot camp, they break, it doesn't matter where you're from, what color you are, how tall you are. Um, they just break you all down. They do the same. They shave everybody's head on the first day. They You wear the same uniform. They break you down. And the ones that don't want to conform to the, the rules, I guess you could call them, is uh, is is cast aside mm. and doesn't make it there. So you kind of just follow along, and that's how they want you. They want you trainable. They want you to be able to send you away and do things mm. with you that normal people wouldn't do. So I think that's it's yeah. to simplify it. I think that's what it is. Is so, and it's 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 the big meeting place. Whether you're wherever you are with mm. a military unit, it's the meeting place. Everybody goes there after work or. Yeah. If somebody's promoted or retires or is transferred, it's all around. Mm-hmm. They used to call them smokers because everybody smoked. Oh, yeah. So everybody go to the wherever and everybody smoked. And they called them smokers. Unit you, smokers. Wow. Do you think that there's more drinking and smoking? Like smoking is a big one. Um, do you think that there's more of that because of the dangerous, the nature of the job? Yeah, you could I, be sent out any minute kind I of thing? Think, yeah, like. It's just, a, I think it's a stress relief because, you know, in policing and in and, and, and military, there's no debriefing really. There's mm-hmm. no real way to let the let the top off and the, and the steam get out, right? Yeah. And it's that's the only way. And uh, like, God forbid you went and asked for help. Yeah. Like, when I was in the military, you didn't do that. I mean, I've got stories and stories and stories of shit that would curl your toes that you would think, how would you get away with that in the military? Now, now I think it's different. I think now yeah. with a lot of, like, there was hardly any females in the military when I was in back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there are command positions being filled by female soldiers and airmen and sailors. I think it, it's probably changed, but I mm-hmm. think that the underlying, it's like being, and I was thinking of this when I was driving up tonight, it's like being hazed your whole life. Hmm. It's kind of like it's how it's been. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean the paddling and all the, you know, the, but it's, that's kind of how it, they, they hold you together, right? Yeah. You don't want to step out of line. You don't want to be that guy, right? Nobody has green hair. Nobody has a beard unless yeah. they're ill or, you know, whatever it is. So I think that's what it is. I think it's a lot better now. Um, I see a lot of guys like, you know, nobody ever bag, brown bagged a lunch or, mm. you know, a lot of guys, you know, my boss, when I was in the army, when I was 20, had a bottle in his drawer. And an ashtray on his desk. I mean, yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. I don't yeah. think. I think it's a lot better. Guys are in better shape. Guys have careers. Mm-hmm. They they think of it as a career. They think of it. They have a family. A lot of guys were just single forever. Yeah, you know, or or a lot of divorces, unfortunately. But uh, I think that's probably yeah, yeah. That yeah. makes sense. You know, it's kind sense. of that they want you at a certain way. They don't they don't want you as you know like a robot, but there's mm. a, there's a part of that, right? So that you're trained over and over and over at the same thing. So that if something does happen and you're deployed, that you can just act and all yeah. the other stuff is, is left behind. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. So you were, you had left the art, you were here in Calgary in the army. Yep. You had a daughter. 
Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, I should back that up. I left the military and spent a year working here. And then I joined law enforcement. I got into law enforcement. Mm. Um, and then my daughter was born. Um, and I, I swore that I would never go back into uniform. And uh, and I guess you just get dragged into that, back into that uh, teamwork, you know, mm-hmm. adage. You work with good guys. And by guys, I mean guys and gals. And, uh, you know, it's that family thing. You spend more time with them than you do with your real family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. And I guess serving is, I guess, if it's a cliche, is in my family, like my dad mm-hmm. and grandpas and uncles were all either police or, you know, military. So, yeah. I mean, uh, whether that's pretty big service work, I guess, you know, serving your country, serving your province, serving your city. Um, so, yeah, I, I was just, it was funny because I applied for the fire department. And they hired, I got final selection and they hired, they were going to hire 40 and they hired 20 and I didn't make the 20. So then my ex-wife now at the time, wife came home and she had an application for the police department. And I said, no, thanks. And the reason why I didn't want to fill it out, because you had to fill it out by hand. There was no typing or anything. You had yeah. to be handwritten. It was 39 pages. So I said, oh, no, I'm not doing that. So anyway, she, she said, we'll do it just for fun. And I go, mm. don't have a degree. You know, mm-hmm. so I said no, and then I did, and I got hired. So fast forward 23 years, um, things have just built up and built up and built up. I uh, I had two overseas tours in my military time, so mm-hmm. I've done things over there. Um, I've lost every member of my family. Uh, my brother was the last one to pass away in 2017, so... Uh, Everybody's been under the age of 59, except for my mom. So mm-hmm. a lot of heart conditions, a lot of illness. So that had a, that weighed heavily on me. Um, and I guess really, I mean, I was, a, I was a big social drinker, but a lot of social drinking. Like mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I, I classified it as social, but I also lied on every form that I had to say, how, like, how many drinks do you have a week? Nobody's yeah. going to know. I also used to take those alcoholic tests on, oh, yeah. on, on the computer and lie like a madman, <laughs> right? Because I knew, that, you know, if you got more than 10 of 15, you were an alcoholic. Well, you yeah. just kind of bend the truth a little bit. So, yeah, my career <laughs> drinking was, it wasn't quite a long. I had my first drink at 13 um, and I liked it. Simple mm-hmm. as that. And I liked the feeling it did. I, I, I tried a few soft drugs when I was a teenager. Didn't really like them. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I stayed on, I stayed on booze and, uh, you know, as you make more money, get older, get a little bit of a career going, you make more money, you can have more fun. And, and I wasn't afraid to do anything. And, and one of my psychiatrists said, you know, you suffer from Superman syndrome where you think you're invisible and bulletproof and you don't care about anything that happens to you. You just protect everybody else. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty, re- that's pretty, uh, Perfectly said. Like, that's mm. exactly how it is, right? So, yeah, I had some things go on at work. I, I um, you know, I was drinking a lot, getting in trouble. Um, and nothing criminal, nothing, just internal stuff. Mm. Um, 2014, I pulled one of my stupid human tricks and, uh, you know, lost a pretty prestigious position. I, you know, I, I wanted to be in for a lot of time. And, of course, I blamed everybody else in the world. Except the drinking, right? You know, I wasn't drunk. I, you know, I blamed this guy and that guy and this person and, and that person. And then I, uh, so I spent a year uh, back working, back working on the street. 
and uh, and then I got wrongly accused of a couple of things, and I was sent off to purgatory for three years. Mm. Um, purgatory? What's that? Purgatory. You know, the tra- highway transfer? They transfer you as far away from home as you can to a job you don't really want to do. Okay, yeah. So it's, you know, you could be the, <laughs> the king of pencils and erasers kind of yeah. job. You know, everybody's had one of those. Yes. And I spent almost two and a half the years in this kind of dead-end job within the agency I'm with, and... Uh, that's when the drinking really started. Mm-hmm. Really started to bug me. My PTSD was raging. I I basically drank, you know, five six days a week, four days a week, to the point of going to sleep because mm-hmm. the demons would not leave my. I used to call them my woodpeckers. Yeah, and you know, it wouldn't just be one woodpecker. I don't even know if woodpeckers travel in a pack, but mine did. Mm-hmm. And once one started into my brain, it, it became two and three. And it was all just the traumas of my life I was reliving. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't sleep. So I would drink myself to sleep and then get up the next day and maybe go to work and maybe do this mm-hmm. and maybe do that, maybe engage in my family, a lot of things I didn't. Now I realize how drinking controlled my life. Yeah. So that, you know, didn't have a care in the world. And my brother had been ill. My, my oldest brother was eight years older than me. He wasn't my oldest brother, so he's my my older brother. He was born with a hole in his heart, had his first open heart surgery at six, had probably 10 through his life, right? Yeah. And uh, and we were good buddies. Uh, we were we always called each other bud. And uh, he died Christmas Day of 2017. Mm-hmm. So I'd already been fighting with the demons, the, the, the woodpeckers, and uh, that just drove me down a deeper hole. And... You know, going through treatment and then begin and starting an A and 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 speaking to my family and, um, you know, um, I had no mechanism to deal with anything really, mm-hmm. so I just drank and then I started abusing my uh, prescribed medications for PTSD, which wasn't good. And uh, fast forward to April of two thousand and eighteen, April nineteenth, I had another incident at work and uh, yeah. I really took me about two days before I had my real, like I had an incident happen and two days later I I broke down and realized mm-hmm. there was an alcoholic, there was a problem. Like yeah. and it wasn't, the alcohol wasn't the first problem, the PTSD was, but the alcohol was my DOC. Yeah. Right? That's where I had to go to. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd been divorced, I got remarried, I have two little boys, um, so yeah, I was on the border, and I after I had my breakdown and realized I needed help, um, and I'd had a few over the years. 2014, I kind of thought maybe I got a problem, so I kind of reached out at work, and uh, this is the old story, you know, somebody got in my office and said, you know, we think you got a problem, and I'm expecting some folders or maybe a brochure or. Mm. I mean, I could spell AA, but that's about all I knew about it. I had a buddy that was in it, right? I knew nothing. Yeah. And all this guy said to me was, you just need to quit drinking. Well, that's a nice little license to go back out, right? Yeah. Oh, it can't be that bad. If Okay, sure. Well, yeah, if all I got to do is quit. Then, well, yeah, tell yeah. any addict of whatever their DOC is, all I got to do is quit that. Well, okay, yeah. right? It's the same as when you pray every morning, just get me up one more morning so I don't you know, don't make me too sick so I can go to work today, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I I thought over the years I'd had some stuff go on and some stupid human tricks that I'd pulled or, you know, things that I don't believe I, I, I should have lived through that I, I thought of it. And then, of course, you get a couple days after post 
stupid activity <laughs> and you go back to it. Yeah. And it's what you know. So, so that was a, I had a meltdown on that one. So my work sent me to treatment um, with my, you know, the support of my wife who was seven and a half months pregnant when I went to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went off to treatment and uh, again, didn't think I was an alcoholic. Um, you know, looked online. Of course, everybody Googles everything, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're going to get the the cure-all of this. And of course, there was no pill. There was no cure-all. There was no, you know, anything that you took that could fix you mm-hmm. or make you better or... Um, so I went to treatment angry. I went to treatment with an, and I even got angry at treatment because I could see all these people coming in drunk and stoned and thought, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Oh, we'll, de- we'll detox. I said, well, I never got told that. <laughs> so I had nine days between having my meltdown and going to treatment. I could have drank. And that's the yeah. way my brain was thinking. Yeah. I had nine more days to drink. Well, I didn't. I kind of detoxed myself at home. And, yeah. and of course you go there and they let you sit in treatment. And, of course, being an A-type personality, I wanted my counselor on day one, and I wanted the book, and I wanted my first assignment. And, and yeah, that's not what they do. They let you sit there and wallow. Well, they call it sitting in your shit. Yeah. And that's what you are, right? Because you're the new guy, and then all of a sudden, eight hours later, somebody else is you know, being brought in on a stretcher, mm-hmm. and somebody else is coming in, and people are coming from all over Canada, mostly Western Canada. I went out to the Victoria area. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of like – you know, my first roommate was an East Hastings kid. Mm. And I'm like, and they say, you can't lock your door. What? And I'm sleeping with an addict? Yeah. You know, and, and about day seven, I was sleeping in a little room with two little single beds. I realized I was no better than him. Yeah. Right? He was 27. Had Came from a good family, had a career, and lived on East Hastings for 18 months. Mm. And you know what he said? He said, like, you know, we're the same. Just my DOC was, uh, like he was on, well, I didn't even name it, he was on it, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, so then I, I realized I was an alcoholic, I got step one, and but on day two, I, I should, uh, so this is about day seven, I figured out I was an alcoholic. On day two, I'm sitting in the lecture hall, and I've told you this story, where I'm looking up at the, the 12 steps of AA, <laughs> yeah. and I'm reading them, and I'm kind of second, and I'm two rows from the front, they had morning announcements. And of course, being a military guy, I'm always early, and and uh, so I'm sitting there reading these steps out aloud, and I'm going, okay, I got maximum forty days in treatment. There's twelve steps. That's three days per step. Four extra days in case you screw one up. Mm-hmm. And this guy, unbeknownst to me, had sat next to me, and I don't know him. And no, mm-hmm. he says, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm just planning out my my time in treatment." And he goes, "You don't get it, do you?" <laughs> And I go, what do you mean I don't get it? And he goes, you don't leave here with the steps. He goes, you might have step one. Some people that are here for 90 days might have a number more of mm-hmm. the steps completed. But he goes, yeah, you don't get a test at the end of the day. And I said, <laughs> really? So then I kind of started to buy into the program where, mm-hmm. you know, on that. but then I said, I'm not talking in group. I talk in group, yeah. right? Because eight guys in my group, we had a fairly small group. Yeah. Cried with them, mm-hmm. laughed with them. Told them they were assholes. They told me I was an asshole, and we worked through it. I did get PTSD help when I was in treatment as well. Yeah. Um, and they have quite a ceremony there when you leave. If you actually complete, and, and it doesn't matter. I mean, you can be there in 90 days. I spent 36, 37 days there before I come home. And they give you a, a chip, but it's a little bit bigger, and it's with the uh, crest of the treatment center I went to. But the staff don't give it to you. 
Somebody hmm. else gives it to you. One of the patients. Oh. Gives it to you. That's cool. So I picked this young guy, James, who was my first roommate. And uh, he actually sat down and wrote a speech about huh. when he gave me the coin. Yeah. And I said this. I said, you know, I thanked all the counselors and the support staff and the, the doctors and the nurses. And I said, but I wasn't cured by you guys. I said, I was cured by the other addicts in the room, mm. right? And here I am, uh, an ex-soldier and a, and a cop. And and you know what? There was people there that were messed up. And out of 62 people, and obviously people come in and go out. Mm-hmm. Some are there, you know, they're almost done when you arrive or they're halfway. And, of course, they <clears> graduate <throat> and go out. There's only one guy who didn't talk to me. One mm. guy. And there's everything. Dentists, lawyers, businessmen. Yeah. I mean, here's my roommate living on East Hastings for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Not a difference in anybody. We ate in the same yep. dinner hall and we lived in the same dormitory styles. And yeah, I mean, it was it was humbling. Mm-hmm. And and I found with it, it wasn't a competition. Like, yeah, there was guys that did some pretty strange stuff, some pretty weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't a competition to see who had done the most fucked up shit. Well, that's good to hear. You know, it was... <laughs> Yeah. Everybody just spilled their guts, told their story, mm-hmm. right? And everybody wanted to get better. Yeah, some guys go back out when they come out of treatment. Some guys left treatment early because yeah. they couldn't deal with the structure. And there is a lot of structure. And another funny story, I went to my counselor on about, I don't know, 10 days in. And I said, I need some more structure. And he goes, what? He goes, we structure everything. I said, I don't know, but I need more. Like, <laughs> I need yeah. more. He goes, you military guys are all the same. He goes, yeah. you all want structure. and. And I said, yeah, we should be wearing like the same uniforms and clothes and shit. Like, you know, <laughs> he just shook his head. Yeah. And he was so funny. We get our best conversations when he used to walk and he used to, I, he would just walk so slow. Mm-hmm. And I'd be wanting to get from point A to point B and his name's Steve. And I'd be like, Steve, let's like make this happen. Let's speed up. And he goes, no, no, this is where I get the good stuff out of you is when I make you slow down mm-hmm. and make you just walk. I mean, this campus we were on was beautiful, like the yeah. big redwood trees and phenomenal. And I, and you know, I got to, and just the simple things that he taught me and, and the doctor that in the trauma doctor that I talked to for PTSD was amazing. I mean, it was, uh, it was probably the most calming part of my life, I guess, in all the chaos I'd lived through. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, one thing that was still burning in my head was, my brother, who passed away like six months prior, four or five months prior, we couldn't bury him because it was Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And I had to go home for his service after I left treatment. And in fact, about three weeks after I left treatment, about a month, I went back home to the East Coast to bury him. And and my counselor came to me and he said, we couldn't get phone calls. First five, seven days you're in treatment, you don't get a phone call. Mm-hmm. Take your phone. You know, It's like kind of like in jail. Yeah. And after that, you earn 20 minutes a night. And that's it. Hmm. Yeah. So my counselor came to me about day 10 and said, oh, your wife's on the line. She needs to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. She's pregnant. He goes, no, no, nothing's wrong. I really want you to take this phone call. Hmm. Okay. So I went to the office. And she said, your sister-in-law called last night in the the memorial service, celebration life, whatever you want to call it for your brother, is set for this date in July. And I've booked our flights, I've booked our accommodations, and I've booked our travel, and everything's done. And it was like somebody just threw the weight off me mm-hmm. for that trauma in my life. Yeah. And it was weird because I don't think in the chaos I lived day to day, as we all do, that wouldn't have even affected it. Right? Mm-hmm. It, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even have moved the way I treated that 
well, drinking myself to sleep every night. Mm -hmm. So it, I noticed then that there was a change in me. And there's still a lot of work. I, I often tell my wife I'm a work in progress. Um, but I, I found on that day, like, it was just somebody took something away from me that I, I needed mm -hmm. taken away. It was really weird. And and I, I found my higher power. And and I'm not a religious guy. And, I, and I've, I've told this story quite a bit about dimes. You find a dime in the weirdest places when somebody's looking out for you. And I have so weird. And I have found, I think I'm up to 11 since my brother passed away. Really, hey? Like I'm talking a month ago, my wife and I are driving in her car and there's a bit of a ledge on my dashboard. And she said, did you put a dime up there? And I go, nope. You know, we have a little change purse where mm -hmm. everybody puts it in their ashtray, the old yeah. ashtray, the cup holder. Yeah. There's a dime sitting there. Huh. I'm like, no. And I think back and I, you know, I'd had a bit of a stressor that day or a trigger or whatever a couple of days before. And yeah. And so what I do now is I glue them on my workshop shelf. I have a little workshop in the basement and I have a little shelf that's got, you know, knickknacks and stuff on it, stuff from the military. And I, I glue them on there with my AA chips. That oh, I get. cool. But yeah, I think I'm up to 11 now. In fact, I've got two more to put up there that I haven't put up and that's one of them. But I'm just where did, thinking. Where does that come from? They say it comes from an angel is looking out for you or okay. somebody that has passed on is looking out for you and they, they the dime shows up when you neither when you either need some help, maybe a little bit of you know, just a little a nudge to keep mm -hmm. you going in the right direction, or to tell you that you've made a good decision. Hmm. That's kind of cool. And eh? I've heard it from a couple of people that I've dealt with. And a, a, another girl I know whose dad passed away recently, she um she did that. And it's it's even weird that I was traveling to the U.S. and I found an American dime about four huh. days before I left. Yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, for a non-believer to start believing in some of that stuff that, A, you can't do it on your own, and B, yeah. someone's going to have to help you out. It's, yeah. The dimes thing is so, like, it's so eerie because I got goosebumps as you were saying it because when I was in Mexico, like, just last, in April, the day before I came back, um, my friend Des Jesse, her mom passed away. And so her and I were talking on the phone in the morning on the day I was, the day before I left. And we were talking on the phone because she was heartbroken, of course, her mom had cancer and it's been just quite a battle for her. Um, but as we left the house after we were all squared away and we talked and, and we were walking to the tattoo shop for me to get my hands done, as we're walking around the corner, I didn't know nothing about the dime thing. So this was new to me, right? But my friend Karen, her daughter, Sophia, uh, she saw a dime. As we were walking and she goes, that's your friend's mom. And I'm like, whoa. I like stopped in my tracks and I'm like, what do you mean that's my friend's mom? That's a dime, right? And and she, she goes, no, it means she's watching out. She's watching out for us. So I kept the dime and I brought it back and I gave it to Jesse because I thought this is like too connected. There's too much synchronicity going on there, right? Kind of like those quantum pairings from across the, you know, the globe or whatever, Really weird shit, but that's cool, man. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they also and I, so I said, of course, as an addict, I said, "Why didn't somebody help me out and throw me a dime when I was struggling?" <laughs> yeah, and then somebody else who who you know was read up on this, and I mean, you can read anything on on, yeah. on the internet, right? Yeah. And somebody else said, "Well, that's because you're not you weren't ready to get help. Mm -hmm. You weren't asking for help. You weren't you know you know submitting to anything. Mm -hmm. You were just in your old ways. So yeah. how are they going to help you?" Yeah. I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. But I still say to this day that my higher power 
sure looked after, well, all of us, right? Mm-hmm. When we're out doing things, because I don't know why I'm still here today. Because I think one of the things I heard when I first came in was from an old timer, and she said, God loves drunks and fools. And then she would say, Thank God you're both, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that kind of goes around the rooms, though, right? God well, loves and drunks then, and, and you fools. You know what? And, and I, I grew up with the. I had to touch the stove to figure out it was hot, right? You, my yeah. mom could tell me a thousand times not to do something, but, you know, put the fork in the plug and do it all the stupid <laughs> things or, you know, knife in the toaster, <laughs> do it all. But that's one good thing about the rooms. I mean, if you are, I don't think anybody who's an addict cannot get through the rooms and they're no bullshit attitude. And that's mm-hmm. what I like about it, right? Yeah. Because they're not, they're going to call you, right? They, It's like having children. Your kids think they can do things behind your back and you don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing or they can do something and get away from it, but they forget you, they, you were it them once. Yeah. And that's what addicts are like, right? That's yeah. what AA is like or NA. I've never been to an NA meeting, but with AA, it's just, you know, people have great ears, but they will tell mm-hmm. you when the bullshit's up. Yeah. And that's what I need. I don't need someone to, to, you know, sugarcoat me mm-hmm. and, and treat me like a snowflake. I need to be told. And that's what straightens me up and makes me fly. Now, I've got a family, my family's back and, you know, things are flourishing at home and that's mm-hmm. great. Um, there's not a simple day left in my life, but it, they don't have that chaos anymore. And mm-hmm. I can, and I actually miss going to the rooms. Like when I don't go three yeah. or four, you know, I try to go four times a week, five times a week. And if I don't, I, I notice how I get mm-hmm. and I have to go back. And, and even my wife notices when I don't go to the yeah. rooms, right? And, and, you know, people that have 52 years in the program, it's got to work. Mm-hmm. I love listening to those guys and their stories. And it's and, interesting uh, you're talking about AA like so much because like it's such a integral part of our lives, right? Like you and me, um, and now even you, really, essentially. Um, but I've heard like the last couple of days, there's just been like the other side of the AA, like that has been going on for some people. But it's interesting because today at a business meeting, apparently, I wasn't there, so. I'm obviously spreading some gossip because I, I can because someone put a microphone here so I can just go blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so anyway, business meetings, I used to go to them. The reason I bring it up is because we're talking about AA overall, right? Like the, the function of this large organization. And I used to go to the business meetings until my old sponsor, my last sponsor, just about got into a fight at a business meeting. And I stood up and I looked at everybody, even my sponsor, and I was like, the fuck is wrong with you people, man? Like, this is not that complicated. You have, we have traditions. We have reasons that we don't do those things, right? So again, guy comes and talks about this today and that people are wanting to kick people out and all this stuff. And, and he's like, and there's one story and this story. And I said, none of that matters. I said, do both of those people want to not drink? And he's like, well, probably. And I'm like, well, you can't fucking kick them out. I'm like, it's that simple. They haven't done, like, there's guidelines for it to keep us from getting wrapped up in that shit, right? Because something happened outside of the room somewhere totally unrelated, but both the people involved go to the same place. So, of course, one wants the other one kicked out and the other one wants the other one kicked out, right? And it's like, we can't do that. But it's good for the kids to learn that, right? To go through that process. Because the guy who was telling me the story was like distraught. Like, and of course, I'm laughing. I'm like, (laughs) and he's like, why are you laughing? This is serious. I'm like, dude, every new generation of people, when you you go into that, that structure of the business meeting from the other structure of like a 
step meeting or something like that happens to everybody. You get into these fights, you get your, you get your backup. You think that this is like your program and you have to defend it. And then eventually time wears on and people come to the realization that, oh, okay, well, we did all that fighting for a year. Nothing changed. And now we're back to scratch because this is the way it's laid out. We're back to 1934. That's right. We're back to that 19, as 1934-ish as you can without being like, you know, all rapey and KKK or whatever they were back then, right? I don't even, like, everything was so demonized. Yeah. Like, drug addiction in the 30s, dude, like demonized. But as you say that, it's not, as far as AA has survived since Mm -hmm. 1934, I sometimes still think that even the sim and don't take this the wrong way, a simple alcoholic, so somebody that does not do drugs as well or mm-hmm. have a gambling addiction or anything, is still is almost demonized. It's yeah. almost like, you know, that cold shoulder that nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. You know, it, it's like it's some some human crime that mm-hmm. you are an alcoholic. Where do you find the most resistance comes for you when you're talking about it? I find a lot at work. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of work. And I don't, and you know, a lot of people have said, well, you know, how many alcoholics are? And I said, I have no idea, but there's probably like 500% more than we know about, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, divorce rates are high and, uh, you know, the pressures are high and, yeah. And, and I know, you know, the debriefs they say are getting better, but mm-hmm. are they? I don't know. I don't I, know if they I'm are. I'm not sure either, but I mean, you guys have a part of the culture of, of, I think law enforcement probably across the planet is to have what they call choir practice, right? Yep. And so if you have a practice that's actually got a name, then you've got a pretty ingrained subculture, right? Like you've got a pretty um, available outlet for that, as you were talking earlier, but maybe it's the angst from being in danger for 12 hours, right? Because that, I could see that. Like there's times where where I've been on ride-alongs because I'm not a policeman, but I've been on ride-alongs and not responsible for any of it. And by the end of the shift, I am worn out. I'm haggard because you know what? You're worried because you know any minute. Well, right? another part of that, I think, is because you spend so much time with these people. Right? Mm-hmm. You come in early to to work out or you come in early to get ready and you, you spend time after finishing up, you know, doing whatever. And you spend a lot of time with these people. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to go home at four in the morning. Well, some people do, and mm-hmm. I've done it, and drink alone when you can go with your buddies, right? Mm-hmm. So it's getting off at two in the morning is like getting off at five in the afternoon when you're working that, that schedule. Yeah. So that's normal time that you wouldn't go home from work from your nine to five job, get yeah. home at six o'clock and go right to bed. I mean, there's things you do to get to your normal bedtime. And I don't know. I think it's a combination of the amount of hours you spend with the same people mm-hmm. um, and you trust them. Um, and that's all you live and breathe yeah. is is that job, right? Mm-hmm. And you take it home. Unfortunately, I was not one that could turn off the switch, and there's a lot of guys that can. Yeah. And maybe that's the new generation. I don't know. I, don't I hope know. so. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the new guys live healthier. They brown bag their lunch. You know, they have those mm-hmm. massive coolers with 30 meals, and, <laughs> you know, they don't drink, and they, you know, they yeah. – but in, they meal plan down to their snacks. Yeah, they yeah. meal plan their snacks and they have yeah. their pills and their vitamins and their supplements, and which is fine. I'm glad they're living healthier. Yeah, it's a movement towards health. Yeah, right? I don't know if they're going to live any healthier, but they're, <laughs> yeah. they're living healthier as yeah. we speak. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think it's better, but uh, yeah. It's so funny you said that about the, when you spend all that time with them, because as you were talking, it's funny how we forget stuff that we used to do. 
like in terms of when I mentioned choir practice, basically that's what I used to do with my crew from the drop-in when I worked overnights. Every fourth morning after our fourth night shift, we would go to the river and drink, the four of us. Same thing, right? It yep. was, And then that's when my addiction really kicked in, actually, when I was at the DI. Yeah, I mean, and you hear of, and I've, I've never been in the civilian business world, um, but you hear of, there's, you know, I've heard in meetings where somebody said, I was basically a professional drinker. Mm -hmm. I took all the clients out when they flew in from wherever, and if they were buying land or buying, I don't even know what business this person was in, mm -hmm. but that I was the one. Yeah. And that's how they became an alcoholic was it was part of the job and they even said they were good at it. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, we were all good at it, right? Yeah. And as much as, you know, being an alcoholic is is maybe, I don't know, demonized or whatever, I mean, but, you know, liquor stores are everywhere. I mean, it's mm -hmm. legal. It it's happens. Nobody kind of yeah. cares if you have too many or whatever, but. Uh, that's, that's interesting because alcohol is not demonized. But alcoholics are. That yeah, that's a drugs good are demonized, but addicts aren't. Every, you know what I mean? Have you seen the? There's like that SWAT. That, I guess you'd have to be like kind of in, in enmeshed in the culture, I suppose. But yeah. it, it's just so strange when I see a report about alcohol. It's the person. The person is responsible. But then when there's reports about drugs, the responsibility goes to the chemical, because that's where all the money is. All the money is in addressing the chemicals because the chemicals are pharmaceuticals, most of them, right? They yeah. lead back there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I could go off on a paranoid rant, but I won't. No, but I can, and I can get that because in, you know, and I've always fought against this idea that, you know, alcohol and now, there, well, not right now, but, you know, five years ago, marijuana was a gateway drug. And mm -hmm. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Okay, so you drink vodka, which I believe is the evil of all of the world is mm -hmm. vodka. Because every addict you talk to, it's always hiding a bottle of vodka. Never a bottle of rum. Because it's odorless. Yeah. You know, it's always a bottle of vodka in my gym bag, a bottle of vodka under my seat, a bottle yeah. of vodka in my toolbox. You know, but so you drink and you have problems and you have life and you have sometimes the smallest things in the world. And then so you move on to something else and you move mm -hmm. on to something else. Well, why would you smoke marijuana when you can buy meth, which is way cheaper? <laughs> right? I mean, it's just yeah. pick a drug. It doesn't matter what it yeah. is. But I used to fight with higher-ups in my organization about marijuana being a gateway drug, and I, I denied it. I said, mm. no, I don't think so. Because I don't think I've ever had a fist fight with a guy that was stoned. Not on, just stoned. On marijuana. Yeah. Right? Well, I've had a lot of fights with guys on vodka yeah. or rum or scotch or... And, I, and so it's hard to, to, to do that, right? Mm -hmm. To think of it that way is I don't think it's a gateway drug. And I think you're wrong. right. I, I think you're opinion, right, man. I'll tell anybody that. But I'll tell you, doctors, there's some doctors that back you up. There's yeah. doctors that think there's not a hook with the chemicals. It's in the person. The hook's in the person, not the chemical. So like well, that's why some people, and there's doctors that have proven this now, that or, or they think they've proven it, I guess. I'm not going to say they've proven it because I'm not a fucking doctor. But it appears that they found some evidence that – it's not true. We have the hook. The hook's in our experience combined with our genes, combined with all kinds of stuff. Not just one thing, right? Where like the epigenetics is this new thing where, not a new thing, it's probably 20 years old, but it's where the, they, the genes, there's no gene isolated, right? So we know that's not true. Um, and you can ask neurosurgeons that. There's no gene for it. What there is, is there's a combination of factors that play a role in turning on genes that allow for you to be chemically dependent, right? So there's, I don't know all the answers, but you're right. 
that's my point is that you're absolutely right. There's marijuana isn't a gateway any more than water is a gateway for pop. No. Right? Like it's there's chemical hooks in things only because they hook to us. Right? I've never tried cocaine. Never even been tempted. Right? Like not once. Why is that? I love drugs, dude. I love them. <laughs> like, but I never tried cocaine. I never tried meth. Um, none of the speed type stuff like that was totally out of my wheelhouse but i never had the inclination no and you know you can go to rooms and you know and and there's no set if there was a set textbook for addiction Mm -hmm. we'd all be cured there'd be a cure yeah but you go to a room and one person will say well i lived with an alcoholic dad and mom and Mm -hmm. uncle and grandpa or my dad was an alcoholic and was abusive and Mm -hmm. and it, it seems to be a I don't even know what the percentage is, but some people either go straight to the being an addict mm-hmm. or some of them are so far away from being an addict. So, yeah, again, my mom and dad didn't drink. Mm-hmm. Didn't drink. Yeah. Now, my brothers were both in the bar industry. I mean, they drank heavy when they worked in the industry, but then when they mm-hmm. get out, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, um, I had a couple of uncles that were alcoholics, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're going pretty far back in the tree. Yeah. Right? And, and so, you, you, for these people that come in and say, well, I didn't have an alcoholic dad, I can't be alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Well, you can yeah. And, and you know, everybody has trauma in their life that causes them grief. And, mm-hmm. and some people always say, and I and I was the same way. Well, my PTSD is not as bad as that guy. Mm-hmm. Like my wars were in Afghanistan, where a mm-hmm. lot of these young guys are now. And yeah, and and you just you qualify it so you can stay drinking. Yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm not. But when you're diagnosed by six independent doctors that say, "Yeah, you are," mm-hmm. then you start to believe. But then you and then you try to say, well, I'm not a, I'm not an A, I'm a maybe a C, right? Mm-hmm. Or an alcoholic anonymous, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Everybody's an A performer, right? You did yeah. your best, and now you're you did always, your best. You did your best, right? <laughs> you know, you should have got a gold medal, but you didn't. And well, I, you know, you do, you do, you get your gold medal of the year. It's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just that way. And I, and and I've said this to you. I know I have about my uh, my feelings for people now mm-hmm. are different. That I, you know, realize what I am. And uh, what I can be, and what I what I've done, mm-hmm. and now I don't think of that person as a you know use any adjective you want a rubby, a drunk, a bum, mm-hmm. a homeless person, a Dave, th- whatever. A Dave, yeah, <laughs> I've used that quite a bit. I should stop. Um, but now I see people, you know, and more here in the core, right? You mm-hmm. see the people that are suffering, and now I think what what got them there because mm-hmm. it's got to be something, right? Yeah. Something that pushed them over that edge, whether they came from an alcoholic family, it doesn't matter what yeah. they're escaping. And now I'm kind of interested in what brings them to that point. Because I know right. what brought me to that point, and I thought, nah, it wasn't that bad, right? But then you think back and go, yeah, you were pretty much a loser, right? It's and funny, dude. Wonder, You're giving me goosebumps because when you, when you talk about uh, the fact that you now are able to relate more to people, that was the whole point, right? Is that we when we get rid of our pain, and we move through our pain, we can see that other people are in pain too. Yeah. Like that's part of the process, I think, of recovery is coming to terms with ours so that we can then connect to others, right? And I don't think anybody, and I believe this, you're not going to go down to Skid Row and save everybody. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have some tools that you Mm -hmm. can use that you can suggest. And I have a guy, a friend of mine now who I just learned was, he considered himself an alcoholic and he was hooked on opiates for a, for an injury. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think if he wants to get into the program or can I, can I push him? And he's, he's scared. He's mm-hmm. scared of what, 
people think he's scared of what'll happen. He's he's scared of a lot of things. Yeah. And I said, well, that's normal, man. That's like you don't want if you're if you're used to going down to the liquor store and buying a bottle mm-hmm. or you know abusing your pain meds, that's that's what you're used to. Yeah. Right. And, and, and are we ever going to be cured? Well, I hope so, but it never, you got, it's never a, oh, I got a year and now I'm good. I can yeah. just, you know, well, no way. You got to be on top of this like crazy. Mm-hmm. Cause I had a, an incident a couple months ago. I was triggered and I, that's the first thing I went to. Yeah. I've never lived or worked downtown and I knew exactly where the bar is, where I, when my car was parked at 11 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and where I was going to go. I was going to skip my doctor's appointment, skip my A meeting. And I had three and a half hours to drink before I had to be home. I never thought of how I was going to hide it. Yeah. The fact that I was, because I think now after a year of not drinking, it would have took me two or three. Yeah. And, and you know, but I had it all planned out. Mm-hmm. After nine months of being sober, I had it all planned out to the infinite detail mm-hmm. of where that bar, and how would I know where a bar was in some place that I hardly spent any time? Yeah. You know, it'd be like being in a foreign country and going, I know where the bar is, because that's the way our brain We works. can smell it. So it, it's- you know, it's nice to get that kick because when I went to see it, you know, I, t- I talked to you and I talked to people at meetings and, and you know, it doesn't take much. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't. And this was no life-threatening incident that happened in my life. It was just a simple thing happening that really didn't have a whole lot of, ma- didn't matter. But yeah. it's, so you realize how people, you know, have enough and just mm-hmm. go crazy, right? Yep. You know, I, I I told my doctor this. I said, I can understand now how, you know, after I've been through a divorce and all that stuff and how people deal with some of these government agencies, how they just mm-hmm. go berserk. I can understand yeah. it now. I get it. Yeah. I never could. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you do that? Like, why would you beat up your spouse or, you know, God forbid, commit a murder? But mm-hmm. now I can understand it because- People have different ways of coping and, you know, whether it be yeah. educational levels or whatever it is, stuff they've experienced. Some people just don't have the abilities, right? Mm-hmm. And it just pushes them to that edge. Yeah. Right? So, it's uh, it's been a learning experience, believe me. I've For sure, Matt. You mentioned PTSD. So, I, I don't want to skip over it. So, uh, what part of your, I guess, treatment for PTSD, uh, what, what are the parts that really save you the most? Um, and maybe connect to the the alcoholic recovery stuff. Like, well, the, the thing with PTSD or any trauma ex- treatment you're doing, you have to be very careful because, well, in my situation, I I signed a two year contract with my work mm-hmm. that I will not abuse alcohol or drugs. Treatment is is done in two parts. So I have a an addictions doctor that I go to every mm-hmm. month. He's just concerned about drinking. Yeah. He's concerned that if I get too heavy into treatment for PTSD and reliving, because I'm reliving the traumas I've been mm-hmm. through, that I will be pushed to drink. Yeah. Now, my PTSD doctor, counselor, also knows that the same way that my alcohol doctor does. And she has told me that if I drink, all my PTSD counseling comes to a halt until I go back to addictions counseling. Mm-hmm. So again, I would... I don't know. I'm just yeah. assuming I would be sent away again or inpatient, outpatient, whatever mm-hmm. it would be done. But until that is, you know, on the right path, that that takes. So it's it's very mm-hmm. hand in hand and they have talked. All the doctors have kind of talked, all the people, mm-hmm. and they know that it can't be too intense. It can't be, you know, trying to push things through 
four or five times a week. I only go yeah. once a week yeah, because I have to have recovery time. So now what yeah. they're doing as well is they're doing what they call exposure therapy of the things that would trigger me. Mm-hmm. So hospitals are big for me uh, from trauma in my growing up and trauma on the job. So hospitals, I, I don't do hospitals. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, things that anger you like driving, somebody cutting you off, that's that's normal. Yeah. Um, but a good thing about AA taught me and not anything to do with PTSD is think of it as that person is having the worst day of their life and that's why they cut you off. Mm-hmm. That's why they turned in front of you. That's yeah. why they did whatever. Maybe their mom just passed away. Maybe yeah. they're rushing off to the hospital. And, and that is so simple, but it works. Yeah. Right? It works. So yeah, the the counseling for PTSD and the counseling for for alcoholism or treatment for that mm-hmm. is is hand in hand, but they're but you got to be careful. What you're you got to be careful, yeah. and, the, and of course, the addictions doctor they say you know don't listen to all the mumbo jumbo from the shrinks, and you know I, I think they get along because they're in the same type of profession, mm-hmm. but they have a very they they have they kind of put a, a rein on me that they don't. Am I am I PTSD? Um, counselor will say to me, how's your week been? Like, have you thought about drinking? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? Before we even start getting into the stuff. And what I do is I relive the experience and then she tries basically changing it like a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we do techniques that bring the, the memories back mm-hmm. and we talk about them and then we try to change the script, as she calls it, mm-hmm. of that it didn't happen or it happened a different way. Yeah. So it's it's really cool that this this big head that I have that carries a hat most days <laughs> is actually works and yeah and and things like that. So it's a very. She said, "You would never get PTS treatment if you were an addict." Mm-hmm. And a lot of unfortunately, a lot of people in the military are still drinking or yeah. abusing drugs, and they they can't do anything with them. They try to to get them off of that, right? But a lot of them are suffering in yeah chemical. Like just prescription drugs, they've proven that marijuana simply will do tons of better positive things than, than the pills. Mm. Like I heard of one guy who was on yeah. 13 different medications for PTSD, got put on medical marijuana and dumped every drug off the thing and was, you know, was mm-hmm. responding great. Yeah. You know? And so, they've been doing that in the States with cannabis, right? Yeah. Like for for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm learning about, you know, THC and CBD and all the different mm-hmm. things and how it's grown and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, even the military allows their guys to smoke marijuana now, yeah. right? I mean, it's... it's, it's oh, do they? Yeah. I didn't I mean, there's that. There's timelines. You can't yeah. smoke at 12 hours for you work or if yeah. you're deployed overseas, you can't. Yeah. Right. And stuff like that. I don't even know what the exact is. But, uh, yeah, so it's, it's mind-opening. But, yeah, it's a fine line with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And they're very careful to ask you if you anything trigger you this week. Did yeah. you think about drinking? They're always asking about alcoholic dreams, mm-hmm. which party dreams they call them. Yeah, and and if anything's like that, then the the brakes get put on the yeah the on the progress. Yeah, okay. yeah. So well, that's good to know because like there's lots of people obviously that have PTSD. Some have been diagnosed. Some have maybe almost been diagnosed, but they didn't want to be diagnosed, right? So they didn't take the diagnosis, which happens. People leave a doctor's office and they say, fuck that, (laughs) right? And they walk away and they just deal with their trauma, self-medicating mostly, right? And, and, you know, there's lots of clinics that do work with PTSD with whoever, I mean. Mm -hmm. And and some of them say, you know, I know that guy's drinking too much, but what do you do? Until they're ready, you can't do anything. That's, That's their only out. I don't know. Yeah. So it must be tough. And I wouldn't want to go through trying to not solve the problems, but 
get some tools that can help me get through, get some strategies mm-hmm. that can help me get through those things yeah. and make them less, uh, less part of my life. Yeah. If I was still drinking, yeah. I didn't have the mental capacity. Yeah. Like the things you miss when you drink are crazy, right? I have, well, I have memory loss. And that, yeah, that makes sense why they don't do those deep dives when you're drinking or using because you're not going to get anything out of that. You're going to get exactly what the ego wants to release and that's it. Right. I mean, yeah. it's like taking the alcoholic test. Like I said, I took one after I came home from treatment. Yeah. You know, hadn't drank in 60 days. So I said, I'm going to take one of these and I'm going to be honest. I'm like, I'm going to be honest as if I was still drinking. Mm. Be honest 60 days ago. Yeah. 17 out of 17. Ace yeah. that one. Yeah. But I never aced it when I was drinking. No. Because <laughs> you're lying, denying, exactly. demanding proof. Right? And you and you wouldn't even necessarily be lying on purpose. What you're trying to do is make it okay that you still yeah. drink, right? So your brain's trying to do all this weird. It's no wonder people think we're fucking bananas, right? Is because we'll do these really illogical things, like when we're maybe in our cycle of addiction, even if we're not using, and we'll do this absurd thing, and then people will be like, "Why the fuck did you do it like that? Like that looked really hard." And then it's like, "Oh, oh yeah." If I'd have stopped and thought about it, I probably would have been able to do it much easier in less time, right? With less effort. But And still doing all that in a land of chaos, yeah. in a life of chaos. And I, that's what I was scared of is you're you're used to juggling all these balls and you're used uh-huh. to, you know, doing all this stuff. I said balls. Um, <laughs> and you're used to being this, you know, this and that and over here and over here. Like you, You're like a... You're like a roadrunner running around, right? Mm. And then you're like, well, I got to have some chaos in my life. But you don't. You don't need to, right? And, you know, people know now if I'm, you know, I'm in a mood. And Mm -hmm. it could be anything. It could be something, you know, you hear something outside, something on the TV, something on the radio. One of your kids says something. It just shoots you off into that where you want to isolate. And that's Mm -hmm. what my wife knows. When I start to do that, she knows there's a problem. Yeah. And she asks, right? And. You're, I'm still, you know, still a rookie at the game. So you still go, oh, nothing. The one word answers, right? And yep. the isolation. And then she knows, like, she gives me a timeout. It's like I'm five again. <laughs> I get a timeout, right? <laughs> Which is good because I have a timeout spot yeah. where I go and I can, and it's my bathroom. I lay yeah. on the floor in the tiles. I turn the fan on. I get that, 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 uh, what they call it, uh, white noise. Yep. And I just, I go through, uh, uh, realization stuff and yep. it, it just gets me back, right? Good show. But like a year ago. What? Yeah. And I can't do meditation because it puts me to sleep, which yeah. is great. But then I snore. And the people in the class when I was doing it in treatment <laughs> would be like, man, you snore. And I'm like, well, the guy's talking about a beach and palm yeah. trees and totally. sand and a, you know, a hammock. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. But this, you know, the realization stuff and the mindfulness is better for me. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people do meditate. And it, yeah. it gets them back in the right space. But to me, yeah. I just fall asleep. But you have a know. workshop. What do you do in your workshop? I do mil- a military collector, so I do yeah. that kind of stuff. So I just a little, I got a little closet down in the basement. I go down at night for a couple hours yeah. and fart around and it's do probably that. Probably meditative though. Right? It is because I yeah. what I do is really crazy with my my family being into baseball. I can listen to a ball game on the radio, which reminds me of my dad because mm. he was a big sports fan. So the French hockey games would always be on the French channel because yeah. he was a Montreal Canadiens fan. Don't kill me. But he would listen to the radio in English because he didn't speak French. Yeah. So we listened to the radio in English and the game would be on the TV in French, but there was always the delay. So delay. that's how I, yeah. all my sports were. And baseball, I mean, baseball was, wasn't very popular, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 70s and stuff. So we listened to it on the radio and I always kind of get that connection. I can listen to a ball game, usually the West Coast games of the San Francisco and the Oakland games are on yeah. and I can do that. Or I sometimes listen to the old radio shows, which are mm-hmm. classic. 
Right. And the only time I turn on the news, the, the talk radio is just to get angry. Yeah. You, know, you got to get a little angry and you're <laughs> talking about all the stupid things. But there's a couple of good podcasts that are out there about, uh, one's about Canadian mysteries. Mm-hmm. It's either about missing people or some of them are about aliens and it's, it's kind of cool. The old radio stories, you know, the Dick, Dick Stacy stuff and all yeah. that kind of stuff is kind of cool. So that's weird. It kind of just makes you go back to your, you know, when you were 10 and life was good. Mm-hmm. I had a bike and that's all you cared about. And that's funny. You said life is good. Someone asked me at the gym, why do you wear uh, Hawaiian shirts all the time? And I'm like, because it reminds me of a simpler time when life was good, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, he's like, I, I, I was just kidding, man. I just was joking. Yeah. Life was better. It was simple. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was. I mean, what did you, what at 10 years old, you got an allowance and you had a bike. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was pretty simple, man. Yeah. Like you just went and did shit and then you were done and yeah. you yeah, had a was... concussion probably, but. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever fell off your bike 20 times in the summer. Oh, it's all good. Dude, I had two brothers, man. We were concussed about every other day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, well, dude, thanks a lot for coming in, man. I don't know what time it is. What time are we at? Is Aren't, oh, dude, nice. Nice timing. Perfect. Appreciate you, man. You don't, dude. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Oh, one one thing before we go. Uh, Wounded Warriors, Canada. Um, if, can we add the link to this podcast as well? And just because, the reason is, you're one of the first people, one of five people I've known through the years who've actually taken advantage of their programs. And it seemed like it was actually beneficial for you. Yeah, I did a, they call it a TRP1, which is, kind of an introduction to PTSD. So I was there with 12 yeah. other soldiers and emergency services workers. Yeah. It was great. I'm wanting to take the second stage, but it's more telling the story. So as you said about yeah. keeping the PTSD counseling and the, and the alcoholism, you can't really do two PTSD treatments at the same time. Yeah. They don't recommend it. So I'm wanting to go That'd back. A great lot. system. Yeah. Like the Wounded Warriors program is based out of Vancouver out here and they have sessions in Alberta and they invite mm-hmm. people and they fly out, they put you up, they feed you. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I will go back to the TRP yeah. too once I've kind of got some stuff cleaned up. But That's awesome, man. That's I'm really phenomenal. Looking forward to it, yeah. Well, and and so if you're out there and you're thinking about people to give money to you, like WoundedWarriors.ca, like that's the website for them. You can buy clothing through them, and they'll give proceeds to the charity. So the stuff that we we think about when we think about soldiers overseas suffering, right? The way we the way they do. Um, if you really give a shit about that. There's this one way that you can like, you know, follow through on you giving a shit is by uh, giving some money there so that people can get the help they need. I think it's just important. So. Yeah, and, and the suicide rate with with returning oh. vets is crazy. Even older vets now, yeah, who you know either down on their luck or whatever. It's it's. I'm on a bunch of different sites and it's it's horrible. Do they have stats for Canada? Because I don't, don't know if they do. The Americans do. Yeah, yeah. they but have they had 22 a day at one point yeah. in the states. They were losing 22 a day to suicide. Which is fucking absurd, right? Like, there's there's got to be stuff that as citizens, like, because um, I know we care. That's the thing. Like, I know that we care because I don't sit around talking to people who don't give a shit. And not, not they're not all in the military. Well, or- the three major contributors to the Afghan conflict, the Brits, ourselves, and the Americans have, I don't know about the Americans, but the Brits and Canes have lost more now to suicide than they have in the actual war. Really? Oh, geez, man. Yeah. Okay, so, that's a bad stat. That's, that's a pretty a bad good, stat. Yeah, that's, that's a bad, bad stat. stat. Anyway, we know that we suffer, right? When people see things they're not supposed to see. Um, even though we keep telling our kids that we've always been a warring people, we'll always be a warring people. It seems like we're not giving ourselves an option to get out of it at any particular time. So we better at least take care of the people who do it, right? Like, yeah. at least we can do fuck. Besides banning war, you know? 
But anyway, thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate thanks, you. Dude. Thanks for the time. It's awesome. Right on. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.